Shall we just look to the Lord in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you, Lord, for this day. I pray, Lord, for Pastor and his wife, Lord, and as a minister in another country. I pray, God, that you bless the work they do and assist their soul. Father, as we gather together, Lord, I pray, Father, that you would speak to us. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us, Lord, from your word. In Jesus' precious name, I pray. Uh, this morning I thought I'll share on uh, on encouragement. Is that okay? And uh, I think sometimes life takes us through seasons of discouragement. And I want to share just this word encouragement. And I want to title my message as the Barnabas Factor. And why would I call it the Barnabas Factor? Because Barnabas was a man of encouragement. Is that okay? And uh, you may be someone who's looking for encouragement or you may be the person someone else is looking for, for encouragement, okay? And I uh, just wanted to keep your hearts open as we go through a couple of scriptures and uh, as we finish, okay? Uh, William Barclay said like this, he said, one of the highest of human duties is the duty of encouragement. He said, it is easy to laugh at men's ideals, it is easy to pour cold water on the enthusiasm, it is easy to discourage others. The world is full of discouragers, but we have a Christian duty to encourage one another. Many a time a word of praise or thanks or a word of appreciation or cheer has kept a man on his feet. Blessed is the man who speaks such a word. Yeah? Blessed is the man who speaks such a word. There's a man called... Uh, Cavett Robert, I don't know whether you've heard of him, but he said like this, just listen to the statement he made. He said, three billion people go to bed hungry every night from lack of food. Three billion people go to bed hungry every night from lack of food, but four billion go to bed hungry for a simple word of encouragement. Three billion go to bed hungry for lack of food, but there are more people who go to bed just longing if there would be someone to encourage them. Yeah? What does the word encouragement mean? To lift up, to give courage, to enthuse courage into a situation or into a person who's lost courage, who's lost confidence, or to build somebody up instead of tear somebody down. Yeah? I believe it's a Christian duty. It's actually a gift that uh, God gives us, the gift of encouraging people, to lifting them up to places where they should be. I just uh, want to quote one, uh, one verse. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11. If you can uh, turn your Bibles to that. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11. It says, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just in fact you are doing. Okay? I think that's a biblical command for us. The, the thing to encourage people is our Christian duty. Okay, I'm just going to give, want to give you an example. Suppose you brought a report card, your 10 standard report card, which read marks like these, or if your child, let's say, imagine your child is in 10th grade and brought a report card like this. So physics 99%, maths 98%, English 95%, biology 82 and history of 42 where would you start? Or where would your dad start? If you got... 99 in physics and 98 in maths, 90 in English, 82 in biology and 42 in history. Can you imagine? Uh, I don't know about me, but sometimes I, perhaps being a normal human being would be, my first question would be, how did you do so low in history? Instead of congratulating the child on getting 99 in physics and English and stuff. But I'm just trying to bring, say a point that... Uh, an encourager would possibly tell his child, wow, the brilliant marks you got in physics and chemistry, you know. Perhaps you should become a, an engineering graduate. You got 82 in biology. Maybe you should try a neat entrance exam for medicine, perhaps. Perhaps you're not a person who can memorize dates and places and names of wars and stuff. Maybe political science may not be a great subject for you, you know. 
instead of starting with the negative thing i think encourages more often speak about the positive things into a person so who was the great encourager in the bible barnabas okay very briefly we'll look at barnabas's life and then uh, we'll carry take it on from there so what was barnabas's actual name his actual name was not called barnabas what was his actual name okay we look at uh, can somebody read acts 436 so actually barnabas was not his name it was a title given to him because of his nature okay but his actual name was joseph all right his actual name was joseph but the title given to him by the apostles was barnabas because he was a tremendous encourager I can't imagine imagine if you were just hanging around Barnabas you had a bad day and you got some issues going on in your head and then you sit with Barnabas and you tell him you know Barnabas this is what happened to me and if you sit with him for 10 minutes man you'll walk out of that place feeling so encouraged i'm thinking that's the kind of guy he was he must have always been like that and uh, the bible talks about another man called Saul who met with the lord and then he became Paul so imagine there's some guy like Saul in our town and he is just catching christians he will go house to house knock on the door and ask you is there any christian in the house if there was he will just drag you out and take you and he had arrest warrants with him he would imprison you he could stone you he could beat you up he could threaten you he could do anything imagine that sort of a guy and he was known everybody knew about this guy called Saul and he had the official right to do that you know he got uh, he got letters of permission uh, to do that and one day Saul becomes a christian and he changes his name to Paul and imagine if Paul suddenly came and you were like wondering i think this guy is a fake you know that kind of thing i think he's just acting christian to so join our assembly and suddenly he manages to catch all of us it may have been such a situation the bible says that when Saul became Paul when he tried to get into the inner circle of the believers none of them would take him in none of them But there was one guy called Barnabas who said no this guy is changed we have to take him in we just go through that scripture acts chapter 9 we trying to see the reason why Barnabas was called so acts chapter 9 and i'm reading from verse 26 when he that is Saul when he came to Jerusalem he tried to join the disciples but they were all afraid of him not believing that he really was a disciple but barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles he told them how saul on his journey had seen the lord and that the lord had spoken to him and how in damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of jesus so saul stayed with them and moved about freely in jerusalem speaking boldly in the name of the lord so just read that again when he saul came to jerusalem He tried to join the disciples but they were all afraid of him not believing that he really was a disciple. Now I just want to pause here imagine if Barnabas was not there. And and here was Saul trying to make friends with the the great disciples and the great apostles you know. And he was not given entry into that circle you know. I don't know if Saul would have really become the hero that he that he actually became no if it was not for barnabas in saul's life saul may not have turned out to be the kind of person that he was he may not have turned out to be the the person who wrote so many of the letters that we have today in our bible okay so that was barnabas barnabas was that connect guy when all the disciples and apostles refused to have saul into the inner circle and said you cannot do ministry with us we are can't believe you Barnabas was that connect you understand but Barnabas took the time off to explain to them hey Saul is not the kind of guy that you think he is Barnabas was a kind of person who would not judge you by what you wear that was Barnabas Barnabas was a guy who would believe the best in you you know he would believe the best in you and he would not remember your past so much as to label you like this guy was like that i don't care if he changes but he was like that he once was like that and so he's not going to join the inner circle you know it was barnabas who put his arm around saul and brought him into the inner circle and said hey let's all do ministry together are you with me that was the nature 
Barnabas was. Now the Bible says that uh, Barnabas and Saul, now Paul, did so much of ministry together. If you read the book of Acts, they traveled from city after city after city. They have planted so many churches and they have uh, brought in so many converts to the Lord and they have preached the gospel in so many places. Is that okay? They were like best buddies doing ministry together. Barnabas and Paul. Okay? Look at this verse, Acts chapter 13. This was the calling on their lives. Acts chapter 13 and verse 1 and 2. Acts chapter 13 and verse 1 and 2. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So that was the beginning of their ministry together, Barnabas and Saul. And I think they did tremendous ministry together. Tremendous ministry together. But at some point in their life, there was a point of contention between them, no? between, between Barnabas and Paul. The Bible says that such a sharp dispute broke out between them that they parted ways. What was the issue? What was the issue about? The issue was not about both of them. The issue was about a third person. Who is it? John Mark. Now the Bible says that everywhere that Barnabas and Paul went, they took along a third guy called John Mark. Okay? So John Mark was the assistant. Was uh, not a servant but a helper. That's what the Bible says. John Mark was a helper. I don't know what, uh, what do you think would have been their duty? What, what do you think uh, would have been the duty of John Mark? I'm thinking of if in, in current day situation, in current day scenario, if, if, if Barnabas and Paul were to do great ministry together and everybody knew about them, I mean, they could do miracles, they could raise people from the dead and their shadow would raise up people and stuff like that. And John Mark was a helper. I'm assuming that John Mark must have been the guy who was uh, booking their flight tickets. And if you, anybody wants to meet up with, uh, with Barnabas or Paul, John Mark was the contact guy, you know, uh, that nobody would have uh, Paul or Barnabas' phone number, they will have John Mark's number, and then he would set up the meeting with them. John Mark would possibly be the guy who is blocking a hotel room when these guys are flying into another city, you know, making sure food is there, making sure the mic systems are good, the cameras have been ordered, you know, that was John Mark. But the story goes on that when they were going together, they, they did many trips together, three of them. But on one such a trip, John Mark said, excuse me, but I can't make it on this trip. Uh, I'm not sure what it was. Maybe it was a personal issue. Maybe there was some wedding back at home that John Mark was trying to excuse himself saying, I is it alright if I miss this trip because I've got something else to do? And so Paul reacted very sharply and Paul told John Mark, this is the last time you're coming with me. You're never going to do ministry with me again. And that was the issue. The issue was about John Mark. Okay, let's see what happened. Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 15, 36. Just give you a little background to this. The background is, every time Barnabas and Paul planted churches in every city, they would go back to those churches. They would always go back and see how, this, how the church is doing. Okay? So sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. And Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. But Barnabas took John Mark and sailed for Cyprus. But Paul took Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. I'm just trying to look at John Mark in this situation. They had a sharp disagreement about John Mark. Paul said, I'm not taking John Mark. He didn't come with us to Pamphylia and he's not joining me now for this next ministry trip. 
But Barnabas must have been arguing, saying, come on Paul, you can't do that stuff. Come on. He's been with us for years together. Just because he didn't come with us for one trip, you can't take him off the ministry team. Are you with me? So the, the disagreement between them ended as, Barnabas had such a big heart, I feel, that he said, okay fine, if you're not going to take him, I'm going to take him. And Barnabas and John Mark went off separately and Paul took somebody else. Paul and Silas went off separately. Understand? I'm trying to imagine the heart of Barnabas. Barnabas was not that kind of guy who would drop somebody in the middle of the way. That was Barnabas. Are you listening? That's the nature of God too. God has been described, we'll go through some verses, but God is somebody who is very encouraging. He doesn't drop us half the way because he's upset with us because of something. Tell you a little story. The story told about a man who wanted to cross a river and he didn't have the means to cross the river. He didn't have a boat with him. He didn't have a canoe. He didn't know how to swim. And so he was standing on this side of the river waiting for some help that would come. And then the story goes on to say that a mud horse came along And the mud horse said, hey, why don't you get on top of me? I'll get you across the river. So this guy looks, uh, thinks for a while and says, uh, okay, fine. I'll get onto the mud horse. So he gets onto this mud horse and as they are going across the river, halfway down the river, the mud horse gets all soggy and wet and then it crumbles and this guy dies. But let's never think that God is like that. God is not a mud horse who will take us through halfway through life and say, get off my back. Are you with me? The Bible says, when you walk through the fire, I will be with you. When you walk through the flood, it will not overshadow you. God doesn't say that we will not go through fire. He doesn't say that we will not go through the flood. But His promise is, when you go through it, we're going to go through it together. We're going to come out on the other side. Are you with me? God never will take us through halfway through the flood and say, get off my back. No, it's not like the mud horse. And I see that quality in Barnabas for the fact that he didn't drop John Mark because of some deficiency that John Mark had. We all have deficiencies, yes or no? We all have character flaws. We are not the best at all our times. We are, there are seasons where we are at our best and seasons we are at our worst that we wouldn't even believe some of the things we do. Understand? And uh, God promises us that He will be with us through the whole thing. Yeah? So that is Barnabas. I want to take you to Hannah. Hannah was whose mother? Samuel's mother. Did Hannah have a tough life? I think Hannah had a tough life. Understand? But I think Hannah had a great husband. You know? I think so. Shall we just go through First Samuel chapter 1? Uh, Hannah was someone not able to overcome the, the despair and the shame that she was going through. Especially when she was provoked by another woman. Shall we just read First Samuel chapter 1? There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zufite from the hill country of Ephraim. Are we there? A certain man from Ramathaim, Zufite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh. Where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. And the Lord had closed her womb. What a situation, no? It was a situation where God had closed her womb, but uh, this man Elkanah still loved Hannah so much. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. I think that was quite mean. What do you think? 
very mean that you would provoke her till she weeps and then even when she weeps you would still make fun of her that she would cry her husband elkana would say to her hannah why are you weeping why don't you eat why are you downhearted don't i mean more to you than 10 sons i think uh, i like elkana for the fact that he did not put her down he was trying to make her feel special uh, saying it's all right am i not more worth to you than 10 sons i don't know uh, whether a husband would equal 10 sons i think a wife would any day want children of her own and a husband is a different uh, category and children are a different category so i think in all honesty elkana asked am i not more to you than 10 sons i probably assume that hana must have said yeah you're not more than 10 sons you know that kind of thing but i think uh, elkana was the kind of guy who was trying to encourage her in through all the thing that she went through because every time when they went to church or went to the temple to pray they had a priest who did not understand her emotions when she would cry when when she would weep the bible says that uh, she would weep and she would talk without her lips even moving uh, have you been in situations where you're praying something so deep that you know you don't want even the guy pers- the person sitting next to you to hear your prayer you know that uh, you would only whisper it to god saying god you hear my prayer i don't want any of them to hear cuz i don't think they'll understand the stuff i'm going through at this time and that was the situation hana was in actually the bible says she wept bitterly year after year you know and uh, she was somebody who was pouring out her heart to god but she had a great husband i'm talking about people who can encourage you through situations okay let me tell you something about the life of david do you think david had a great life See, in all my understanding of David in Sunday school, I always thought of David with a harp sitting on a rock in a field. There are some sheep grazing there, and here was David sitting on that harp. I think it was my children's Bible that had that picture, and that picture stuck onto my head because it was a great picture that was painted. No, the David was a guy who was sitting on his harp and playing. But David had more difficulty than that. Let me just recap David's story very briefly. David came from a family where his dad Jesse did not even consider him uh, you know good enough to attend the coronation ceremony of the next king of Israel. When Samuel came to Jesse's house he came to anoint the next king of Israel. Have you had your investiture ceremony in school? Yeah? Imagine you were school captain. I'm sure your parents would have been there at the meeting. They must have your grandmother must have surely come, you know that kind of thing. and it was a big deal the investiture ceremony itself was a big deal when you were house cap or sports cap or whatever it was you understand what i mean and here was a here was a coronation ceremony for the next king of israel and jesse did not call david so david was out there in the field and here comes the prophet samuel and uh, so samuel asked jesse bring out your sons so all the sons were lined up and samuel is thinking to himself uh, not talking to god and thinking is that uh, is that the one lord eliab looks tall and handsome muscular and god says no samuel says really not that guy how about that guy that guy is also quite strong muscular and god says no not that guy too and samuel must have been like really god how about this guy how about this guy this guy this guy this guy and they all done and the prophet samuel looks at jesse and says is that all can't be right because god sent anoint one the son of the sons of jesse is do you have any other sons and jesse says yeah there's one of them the little fellow he's out there in the field and samuel says call him in and as david is coming in the lord says that's the guy that's the guy david's brothers always bullied him yeah you know the time when goliath was there at the battleground and uh, david was there looking at a sheep doing his minding his own business he comes back for lunch perhaps and his dad says hey why don't you just pack these sandwiches and this this water and this you know cheese and get it to your brothers and david is this taking the stuff and going there not complaining over anything saying oh big brother big deal why should i go give my brother stuff and he just carries it into the battlefield and there his brothers scold him saying how dare you come here you should be looking after the sheep there and he's like no dad just told me to give the cheese to you guys yeah chill it i just came to give the cheese to you guys that's all and he gave the cheese he gave the bread he gave whatever he had to give when he's just walking back 
He's walking back when he overhears Goliath's shout. And then he says, wait a minute. Did that guy shout? What is he shouting? And then he tries to find out, who is this guy shouting? And then he realizes that 40 days, there's this Goliath has been challenging the armies of Israel. And David, no, was the kind of guy, man, you provoke him, you're dead. That was how David was. You know, whether it was Nabal who provoked David by saying, who is this David? Why should I give him biryani? And David saying, who is David? I'll come and show you who David is. Hey guys, come on, let's go show him who David is. David was that sort of a guy. You know, you provoke him. You don't want to provoke him. No, he's not that always a sweet guy playing on the guitar. You know, he's like that. So he had this battle with Goliath. You know, according to David's philosophy, David looks at Goliath and says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who's challenging the armies of the living God? According to David's philosophy, here's an uncircumcised guy challenging the armies of circumcised people. In fact, in David's understanding, anybody could have chucked a stone and that guy would have come down. Because we are circumcised and he's not. How dare an uncircumcised guy challenge the armies of circumcised people? He's out of covenant. We are in covenant. I'm assuming that according to David's understanding of God, any stone chucked at that guy would have gone with the anointing of the Holy Spirit and gone and hit them. You understand? David didn't have a great marriage, did he? Did he have a great marriage? He didn't want to be Saul's son-in-law, but it just happened that whoever beats Goliath becomes the king's son-in-law. And so he marries who? Michelle? Michelle was a great woman perhaps. She loved David so much. In fact, she loved David too much that she was so over-possessive of David. Possessiveness can be good, but over-possessiveness sometimes is not so great. He was David. He won a battle. He's coming back. The whole of Israel is celebrating. The Bible says that they were giving cakes and raisins and there was music being played. Everybody was dancing. Everybody was dancing except one woman in the palace saying, how dare my husband dance with all of them. You understand? And the marriage didn't work out very well. If you read between the lines, the Bible says that David uh, never had a child through Michelle. And David had other wives after that. He had a tough marriage. To have a tough wife is one thing. To have a tough father-in-law is totally a different thing. To have a father-in-law who you don't get along with is a different thing. To have a father-in-law who wants to kill you is another thing. And here was Saul attempted many times to kill David. David would be playing the harp there and zook goes the javelin. David's ducking this way and that way. Then he runs away from the city, away from Saul. Can you beat it? It was tough life. In case you thought that David just walked through life, he was king of Israel, he was king of Israel. But everything went was difficult. He had difficult brothers, he had a difficult dad, he had a difficult wife, he had a difficult father-in-law. And when he had children of his own, he had difficult children too. There was rape within the family, there was murder within the sons, and then one of his sons wanted to take his own life. Absalom wanted to kill David. David runs away to another city just to tell Absalom, if you want to keep the palace, want to be king, cool boy, be king, but you don't come out of chasing after dad, I'll go stay somewhere else, you know? That was the kind of person that David was. But in spite of all of this, I'm sure there were moments in David's life when he felt so discouraged. And David did not have many people to encourage him, you see. Like we have family and friends. David tried many times to encourage himself. Oh, why are you disquieted within me, O my soul? Rise up and praise the Lord. Trying to encourage himself. We're still talking about encouragement. Where sometimes we go through difficult stretches of life. And sometimes we don't have people to encourage us. And like David, many times we have to encourage ourselves saying, Why are you like this? Oh my soul, come on, we can't be like this. We've got to get up and praise the Lord. Are you with me? That was... What about Job? Job had a life where he lost his health. He had a blistering disease. And I'm trying to figure out what kind of blistering disease, what kind of pemphigus or whatever it was that had affected him. He lost his wealth. 
the bible says job was the richest man in the east and i'm like wow he was the richest man in the imagine the believer the richest man in the world today is a believer no and not the sheik imagine and here was job the richest man in the east every buck he earned was 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 white money there was no black money there was no uh, business deals were not good and he supported the poor he supported the fatherless he supported the widow there were many things he did but he still was the richest man okay and for him to lose all his wealth like that he lost his children he lost everything and then what happened that did he have comforters who came to comfort him his three friends came and the bible says that they sat quiet for seven days they just watched job cry they watched job weep job went through everything but then job knew that hey he's telling his wife we've had a tremendous life we've i mean we earned a lot we we've lived in comfort shouldn't we expect something bad from god you know in job's understanding of god that god was sovereign god can do anything anytime but his wife was not like that he said why didn't you curse god and die and job says no that's not what we do to god you know god has always been good to us that was his understanding now his three friends came and sat quietly for a week at the end of the week what did they do they slowly started uh, telling job their understanding of god their doctrines their philosophies and they were trying to inject job into this philosophy that nobody suffers without sinning there must be some sin job you look look back into your life there must be some sin there must be some secret sin god is never like that actually they were trying to paint a good picture of god actually you know in all the understanding they were trying to paint a good picture of god they were trying to put crutches for god and telling job actually god does this thing only for wicked people he doesn't do it for righteous people he doesn't hurt righteous people they never go through difficulties you understand and job was listening he was trying to argue the case out with them in his quiet moments job would look out to god and cry to god and say god tell me what is wrong tell me what i did wrong weigh me on a scale what lord i have not sinned come on this can't be that i have not sinned you've not taken out your anger on me but slowly job moves from that to that and then at a certain point job says cursed be the day i was born that's a statement yeah he says may that day be removed from the history of time that's what he said and then he asked god this question why didn't you just bury me like a stillborn child from my mother's womb straight into the grave why did you even let me see a day have you ever said something like that ever in our lives i mean these are big statements i mean you've been through hardship in your life if you say cursed be the day that i was born Or why was i not buried as a stillborn child from my mother's womb straight into the grave and not seen any of this stuff in life that was job you know that was job out of the bitterness of his soul he cries out to god and at a certain point of time job stands up to god and says that's so unjust of you i never thought you'd do something like that so unjust of you and when god comes up on the scene when god comes up on the scene the first question that god tells job is are you questioning my justice look at the chapter there the first question that god says is are you questioning my justice but job had something to tell about his friends look at this in job chapter 16 i'm reading from verse 1 then job replied I have heard many things like these you are miserable comforters all of you will your long-winded speeches never end what ails you that you keep on arguing i also could speak like you if you were in my place i could make fine speeches against you and shake my head at you but my mouth would encourage you comfort from my lips would bring you relief what a statement no Job was so fed up with those three fellows. He's saying, "Hey, I also can talk like you, man. If you were in my position, I also can shake my head. I, I cannot. I can. I can't imagine how these guys must have spoken to Job. No one must have provoked him. My God, you guys are wagging your heads and talking to me, and I'm going through suffering here. And you are like, I could also speak like you. 
if you were in my place and I was in your place, I could also say stuff like that to you, but I would not. You know? Job in his wisdom says, uh, I could make fine speeches against you and shake my head at you. In verse 5 he says, but my mouth would encourage you. Comfort from my lips would bring you relief. I just want to pause here to ask ourselves. When people go through a difficult time and they come to ask you counsel or come to ask you for help or to, for direction, you know, you know some things, people have gone through some difficulty. Would you be the kind of person who will encourage them or discourage them? Understand? I believe as Christians, the calling is to encourage people, to enthuse courage into someone who's lost courage, who's lost confidence, who's, who's afraid of life, who has fear. Would we be people who would build up people and not tear people down? Are you with me? I wish we would be like Job, that we would be there to build people up. Even if it was a patient or a student or a colleague going through a difficult time in their life, instead of beginning to explain of doctrines or philosophical thinking like how Job's three friends were trying to do, sometimes the best thing that those three friends did was to sit quiet for seven days. You know? I don't know if you've heard of that accident that happened a couple of years back. The two medical students who died in a car crash. And uh, one of the medical students was my immediate neighbor and the other was my foster child. You know, we have foster system in CMC and every medical student who comes in CMC is given a foster family. And I was his foster dad. And we've had plenty of dinners together. We've had plenty of get-togethers together. And in fact, we had a dinner just three days before that accident. In fact, the dinner was called by my foster son. And we had dinner and... Uh, I was so shocked when I heard about the accident and I ran to the accident site and they couldn't get my foster son out of the car. They couldn't get him out of the car. And the door was smashed and it took about half an hour. They called the fire engine. They put a chain around the door, tried to yank the door out. It just wouldn't come. And finally it, it opened. And here was my neighbor and here was my foster brother. Both of them were cousins too. And their parents are very good friends of my parents. And uh, so I, I had taken them to Vela Medical College, to the mortuary, did all the formalities there, the forensic and everything. And we was there till about five in the evening. And five in the evening I went to my neighbor's house just to comfort that auntie. I went to their house and that auntie broke out in tears. There were many people there in the house. And there was only one question that she asked me. Ivan, how can this be God's will? Do you think it's God's will? How can this happen to my son? I didn't have the answers to any of those kind of questions. I just knew that I lost my foster son, I lost my neighbor, and she lost her dear son. There were sometimes I believe that it's better to just stay quiet. And staying quiet is the best form of being with them. That God will answer them at the right time. She had her questions for many months till she came across that verse in the book of Psalms where it says, The Lord shall preserve your soul. Actually in Tamil it says, He will preserve your soul. Sometimes He doesn't preserve your flesh. But He promises to preserve your soul. And she took comfort in that. You know? And, and God can comfort. God is the best person to comfort. Let me just go through one more uh, passage about somebody who is going through a difficult time. Moses. What was the calling on Moses' life? What was the calling on Moses' life? To be a? To be a deliverer. Why do you think he, why do you think that God just uh, allowed him to grow in the palace and not with his mother as a young child? Why did God choose Moses to go speak to Pharaoh? He could have chosen anybody else. There were so many 30 lakh Israelites were there. Why? Why didn't God choose? Because the Israelites were already there. No, They were already there in Egypt. He could have raised up a deliverer there itself. Moses had run away many years back. 40 years back, Moses had run away. He was in the desert. Why did God go and choose Moses? 
Moses knew how to talk to Pharaoh. He grew up in the house of Pharaoh for many years. Understand? Moses knew how to stand before Pharaoh. He knew how to greet Pharaoh and how to bow before Pharaoh. He knew the customs of the palace. He knew who's who in the palace. Because God had let him grow in the palace, you see? He was the only qualified person to enter the palace of Pharaoh. Can you put the story together from the beginning and the end now? That many years later God would choose Moses and say, Moses, I want you there. And Moses is trying to give so many excuses, saying that, why don't you get somebody else? I'm a stammerer. I've always been like that. I've been a stammerer. Before I met you, I've been a stammerer even after I've met you. That's what he tells God. God says, that's no big deal. I'll be with your mouth, he says. Not I will be with you. I will be with your mouth. And Moses doesn't trust God enough. He says, no, no, no. I don't want to come. Then God says, okay, fine, I'll make Aaron. But Moses, I'm not giving up on you, Moses. I've raised you up for this purpose. You understand? Some of us, I think God has raised us up for a purpose that even if we say, I don't want to do that, he's, sometimes he doesn't let us go. Like Jonah. Jonah, you dive into the sea, you go into the belly's whale. I'll get you out, I'm going to take you back to Nineveh. That's your destiny, Jonah. I'm going to take you there. You understand? Moses goes back. To be a leader of 30 lakh Hebrews was a big deal. I feel so. If you worked in a Christian institution, to be a leader of 5,000 people, 5,000 differently Christian people, you know, everybody is differently Christian. Everybody has got their own understanding of what is right and wrong, their own understanding of what it is, you know, of how things should be done. To be a leader of 5,000 is difficult. To be a leader of 30 lakh people, my God. And he was leading them out from Egypt to Canaan land. And there were grumblers and mumblers all along the way. The Bible is very specifically that God was upset with the grumblers and mumblers. There were people who always said, Egypt was a great place. We got mutton fry, man, there. The food was great there. I mean, I'm assuming the food really was great. Really, I'm thinking Egypt was a great place. In case you, uh, please don't misunderstand me. Canaan was the place that God intended for them. But Egypt was also a great place. Egypt was a place of best education. Egyptian culture was the best among the world at that time. So when the Bible says Moses grew up under the education of uh, the Egyptians, it was a power statement actually. You understand? And uh, every time there was famine in Canaan land, Abraham also went to Egypt. Jacob also went to Egypt. Joseph went there and stayed there. You understand? Joseph was born there. Even later on when, uh, when Herod wanted to kill Jesus, the angel of the Lord came and told Joseph and Mary, take your son and run to Egypt and stay there. So they went to Egypt and stayed there. So Egypt itself was not a bad place by itself. It was a great place. But God had other plans to move them out of Egypt to take them to the promised land. And Moses had difficulty. There were several times where Moses vented out his anger at the Israelite people. There's one place where Moses lost his school. That was the last thread Moses said, enough is enough. God, I just cannot tolerate them. I don't know how you are tolerating them. Actually, God also did not tolerate them many times. Many times God would get very angry and say, Moses, step aside, I'm going to kill these fellows. Moses said, come on, Lord, don't do this. Don't do this. All the other nations will laugh at you. and Come on. You know? And God relented, the Bible says. Remember the time when Moses was coming down the hill, mountain, there was there was party going on down there. And Moses broke the tablets. I'm like, come on Moses, you can't throw the tablets down. They're not yours. But Moses was so angry that he threw the tablets down, broke it. Before that, God was upset. God told Moses, I'm going to destroy the Israelites. And Moses says, come on, you can't do that. You brought them out of this. Come on, people, the surrounding nations will talk about you. How are you going to answer that? They will laugh at you, God. Come on, beat it. You can't do this. Chill it. You can't get so angry. And God relented. Are you with me? God relented. But at a certain time, Moses loses his school. Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11, verse 11 to 15. And Moses asked the Lord, Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you have put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all of these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant? To the land you promised on oath to their ancestors. 
Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you are going to treat me, Lord, please go ahead and kill me right now. If I have found favor in your eyes, and do not let me face my own ruin. What Moses is basically telling is, these are not my kids, Lord. Come on. You can't expect me to be so distinct to them and put them on my shoulder and carry them and all. I'm not going to do that. They're not my kids. I can't do this, Lord. Come on. I'll tell you what, Lord. Either you kill me now or I'll have to face my own ruin. What a statement, no? Moses is saying, God, either you kill me or I'll kill myself. Woo! But life had pushed him to that point. I think we all go through that place where there's a final breakdown point. That was Moses. You know, Moses, so he put it down. He was somebody who talked to God like that. I may not dare to talk to God like this, but Moses was somebody who would talk to God like, come on God, these are not my kids. Come on, you can't expect me to do all this kind of stuff. I can't do this. But that was his calling, remember. That was his calling. His calling was to take the people out of Egypt to Canaan. I'm asking you a question. Is it possible that, that your calling can become a burden to you at some point, at some point of time? That's the question. Is it possible that the calling you once cherished, you loved it, you loved this calling that God gave you in your life? Is it possible that this calling can become a burden to you? That you would tell God, I don't want to do this anymore. Is it possible that as parents, you know, that the calling for me to be a dad or a mom, is it possible that that calling would be a, become a burden to me one day? Is it possible that our calling is to be as children for our parents, the parents who loved us and financed us and took care of us and, and cleaned us up when we were young and, and just because they are old now with Alzheimer's or, with, a, or with, a, with incontinence or with some kind of disease, that is it possible that your calling to look after them would become a burden? It is possible that we all reach break point. Okay? And then that's when God comes through. I just want to close with two verses. Psalms chapter 10. Psalms chapter 10. I'm reading verse 17 and 18. You Lord hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them. And you listen to their cry. Defending the fatherless and the oppressed so that mere earthly mortals will never again strike fear. Okay? You Lord hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry. Defending the fatherless and the oppressed so that mere earthly mortals will never again strike terror. I think God was somebody who would always stand up for the oppressed, for the afflicted. You know? So that mere earthly people will not strike fear among the others. God was somebody who was always a defender. You know? He was a defender of the weak. He was a defender of the fatherless. He was always a defender of the widow. No bullying. No bullying allowed. That was God. I'll finish with one last verse. Isaiah chapter 25. And verse 4. A beautiful verse that describes God. Where the prophet Isaiah describes God like this. Isaiah 25 and verse 4. Isaiah says, You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm, a shade from the heat. I understand that was a shade from the heat and velo, so hot and you just seeing there's a little bit of branch also is okay. I'll go stand under that for a couple of minutes, you know. The heat is so much. The Bible says, God is like that. I will stand under the shade, under his shade. He is my hiding place. When the world discourages me and mocks me and creates a fear situation around me, I will hide myself in him.
no better place for us to hide than him. You know, there were times when Israel as a nation tried to find refuge in Egypt, trying to find refuge in Assyria. And God was telling the Israelites, now don't look to Egypt. Don't look up to Assyria. Look up to me. You know? I want to close here. I believe God wants us to be people who will encourage others. That okay, like Job, like God, you know? We are God's children and, and his DNA has to run in us, you know? I like to, the way a pastor described DNA as the divine nature of the Almighty. Little bit at least should trickle down into us, you know? His nature. If he's a great encourager and the father of all comfort, the Bible says, who comforts us so that we may comfort somebody else. Imagine he's a father of all comfort. Wow, that's a cool God we have, you know? To think that uh, the boss is a really cool person. You know, he is like that. He is compassionate. He's abounding in love. That's the king. And we are his children. And we need to be like that. <coughs> so we just look up to the Lord in prayer. <coughs> Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you Lord for what we heard today. Thank you for who you are. You're a shade from the heat, protecting against a storm that's pushing us up against a wall. Thank you, Lord, that you're always there to encourage us, to calm us down, to lead us beside still waters, to, to lead us to places of green pastures. Thank you for the way you've shepherded us, Lord, all through our life. And Father, if You've given us that gift of encouragement. I pray, Father, that you would stir it up in us. That, Lord, we would be like you. That we would slow down our life to stop next to somebody who is hurting and cheated and afraid and humiliated. That we would put our arms around them, comfort them and encourage them. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. Lord, you are with us. Christ's name, Lord, amen.